Shalom. And we are live at the Jewish Mind. And um, we're now going to go ahead and give our fifth class, which is the third class on chapter three of Tanya. And with that, we're going to finish this week the lectures on chapter three of Tanya. Let's just literally in not even minutes, but seconds, recap the main fundamental theme of, of the first and the second lectures in, um, on, upon chapter two of Tanya. Okay, so let's do this. In chapter two of Tanya, actually I see I made a typo here. I put chapter three, it's gotta be chapter two C. Okay, <laughs> so the, um, the first class explained what does it mean that, that the godly soul is truly a piece of God above? What did that mean? Right, we spoke about that. We spoke also in that class upon the descent that even though every soul is truly a piece of God, and thus, if it's the essence of God, essence has no complexity. So if you grab one piece of soul, you've grabbed the entire essence of God. So we spoke about that descent from where it is in its source to coming down. We spoke about the express line, the local line, which one has more manifestations as it evolves and evolves, uh, descending lower and lower. And the other one is down here, just like it is up there. We gave the example of in uh, childbirth, uh, according to Kabbalah, the DNA comes from the depths of the brain of the father um, to the point where it's so deep that even a, a blind father can have a seeing child because at that depths of his mind, there is no such thing as blindness. And then we spoke about how the child is not just the brain. It came from there, but it didn't develop just into the brain. So you have the brain and today we see it with pictures, right? And we discussed how that works. That from the brain, you have the stem and the heart and the whole thing until we get to even the nails. The baby's born even with hair and nails, which is such a minimal amount of life. When you cut it, you don't even feel anything. And we spoke about that process of an entire individual being all the souls of the generation together. Okay? And then we spoke about within each individual soul itself, the same thing. So there is that level, which is the essence that doesn't change. And that is the brain of the child, which is exactly a piece of the brain of the parent. And then we spoke about all the other layers that goes down, right? Then the class after that, we spoke about connecting to your soul power, being that we all have to be connected to the brain, which is the true reflection of where the child came from. And that is in every generation. That is the Reb of the generation, the Moses of the generation. And uh, that is that higher intellectual process. You want to just close the door, please? The higher intellectual faculties and beyond. And that's how we stay connected. The last piece of this Tanya, this, this chapter two in Tanya, talks about something interesting. In today's Torah portion, you have the commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, when you know how the Ten Commandments work, you know that the first five commandments, which was on the first tablet, is between God and man, man and God. The second tablet, thou shall not kill, right? Thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal, thou shall not 
commit the adultery. Those are what? Those are man to man. Now, where is the commandment of honor your father and mother? And the answer is that the commandment of honor your father and mother is on the first tablet. It's number five. Right? right? Yeah, I am God, your God. Have no other gods. Do not carry God's name in vain. Heed the Shabbat and honor your father and mother. Thus, we see clearly that honor your father and mother is not between man and mankind. It's not just about menschlichkeit. My parents, my father and mother, deserve, have earned my, my respect. No. If, if that would be the case, it would be on the second tablet. The reasons on the first tablet is because honor your father and mother has nothing what to do between you and your father and mother. It has to do with the fact that they are partners with God in your creation. As our sages say, three partners there are in the creation of man and, uh, you know, the child. And therefore, it's on the first tablet. Thus, whenever I'm, uh, I'm dealing with, you know, counseling a child that's dealing with a parent, whatever it may be, or a parent with a child, I'm trying to put them together. The foundation is that there is that type of honor and respect that the parent has to earn. I'm not going to give my father and mother the honor afforded to sage advice if one's uh, an alcoholic and the other one's a bum and this one walked out of me and this one is that. That's not something that the Torah is telling you. Honor your father and mother as if they're sages. And whatever they tell you is the best advice. No. But on the other hand, there is the honor your father and mother that doesn't have to be earned. And thus the Jewish law is very precise on what exactly that honor is. You can't sit on their chair. You can't call them by a name, by their direct name. You never refer to your parent by their first name, um, so forth and so on. And it is, it is so much so, I just want to share, because I've always been impressed. Um, they were actually living here by his parents for a while. Um, I'm not going to say the name, it's not a public uh, uh, broadcast. But you know that Svardim, unlike Ashkenazim, Ashkenazim never give a name after the living. Svardim absolutely give a name after the living. Your first child usually is named after your father who's still alive. In this case, I know this family, a beautiful family. His child was given the name of his father. He, he didn't tell me this. His wife told me that I've noticed that my husband will never call his own first son by his first name in the presence of his father. That's not something the father had to earn. That's what the Torah says. So there's difference here. So when we talk about this, let's focus now. In chapter 2 of Tanya, we pretty much explain that the soul is a piece of God. How the soul descends is literally God's choice. We don't decide if the soul is going to have a direct descent without any evolution of descent. And thus it is here exactly the way it is up there like a tzaddik who's always standing on your kipper mode because his soul literally did not go through any evolution of contractions to, in order to descend into this. So it's exactly the way the soul knew God up there 
the soul is standing in your chipper mode all the days of the year, 24-7. Or if it's going to go ahead and have such different contractions and concealments until it is considered like the toenail of the body, the unit of all the souls. With this being the case, what exactly did the parents do? We're talking here about honor your father and mother because there are three partners with God. You have the first two partners, uh, that you have God. And then you have the father and the mother. What exactly does the father and mother have to do with anything? It seems to be that the entire process of the father and mother, most people will say, has only what to do with the body. The animalistic soul, which is attached to the body. But the godly soul, they're not partners. Al-Tareba quotes, it is a very interesting book. When, uh, when we get engaged in yeshiva, there's a certain book called Reish's Chachma, printed in three volumes. Um, one of them over there is Shara Gedusha. It's a Kabbalistic book. One of them is called Shara Gedusha, The Gateway of Holiness. And in there, he talks about all the laws of marital relationships, but not the laws from the legal point of view that you'll find in the Talmud, and as it's fished out from the Talmud, put into the Code of Jewish Law. Rather, he's talking about it from a Kabbalistic sense. He has to do some very interesting things, very interesting things. And, and over there, he says, and the main thing is, that the father and mother should sanctify themselves at the time of coitus. Am I saying that right? Okay. Because that, that will make all the difference in who the child is. But one second. We just learned that the child is has to do with up there. We don't pick souls. We don't just choose exactly how the soul is going to come down. So why is he saying that the main thing is that the parents make themselves holy at the time of coitus. But you should know, he talks over there, I want to give you a little bit of background. What does it mean they should make themselves holy? That's what tonight's class is about. Not a class you're usually going to give in yeshiva. But we're sitting here by the table. We've all been through life. So what exactly does it mean you should make yourself holy at the time of coitus? So first of all, you should know. The impact of the mind of the parents upon the offspring is not just spiritual, not just intellectual, not just emotional, but he goes on to say that it's physical. So much so that he talks about a historic story. He lists a historic story that took place that the king gave birth, the queen gave birth to a child of color Thus, the king accused her of having an affair. Where would you have a child of color if it's not in our genes? She went and she said, absolutely not. I've never been unfaithful to you. So he brings down in that holy book that the king's advisor, he was asking, the king was asking his advisor, she seems to really be telling the truth. I know her. What's going on? So the advisor says, your majesty, if you may, can I go into your bedroom? Sure enough, he documents this all, this holy Kabbalistic book. 
So sure enough, he saw that in the bedroom, there were figurines and arts of people of color. He turned around to the queen and he asked the queen, I need to ask you a question. During the time of coitus, did by any chance this art catch your eye and your mind drifted off to think about it? Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about thinking about having a relationship with, no, I'm not even talking about that. But was your mind thinking? And she blushed. <laughs> Go tell the king, like, you know, I, I got kind of caught up. <laughs> but she said, yes, this is the truth. He turned around to the king and he said, your majesty, she was faithful to you. That's the reason why. In, in Jewish tradition, I shared with you once, Phyllis, when my grandmother saw any one of her daughters or children that were pregnant or anything, they were not allowed to look at anything vile. In the code of Jewish law, it's brought down that there is the custom of the holy women that if they come out of the mikveh, the night that a woman goes to the mikveh, there's going to be relationships. If she comes out of a mikveh and she sees a non-kosher animal, i.e. a dog, she should go back into the mikveh. Another thing, it actually brings down, down there. What is the definition of an illegitimate child? Many people have the wrong opinion. If you have a child at a wedlock, then that, no, that's not what it means. Uh, it's, not, it's not exactly the greatest pedigree, but that's not, not called an illegitimate child in Jewish law. Illegitimate child in Jewish law is very simple. From a forbidden relationship. Forbidden relationship as in a married woman. Incest. That's what's called the illegitimate child. That is biblical. <coughs> In this Kabbalistic book, he says something so powerful. He says, and what is a rabbinical, not a biblical, it's not a matter of law, but what is on a mystical level an illegitimate child when two people, husband and wife, are together and one of them is thinking about another person. On a spiritual level, we're creating an illegitimacy. So why am I sharing with you all of this? It's because the holiness, the sacredness, I'm giving you examples where it manifested itself physically. Besides that, we're talking spiritually. So therefore, the Alter Rebbe wants to know, if we just explain that who this child is going to be on a spiritual level has nothing what to do with the parents, the Alter Rebbe even quotes in the Holy Arizal's teaching, Rabbi Isaac Luria, he says on the secret of our father Abraham, he quotes that secret and he says, what is the secret? Who was Abraham's father? An idol worshiper. Not only an idol worshiper, an idol maker. Avram's father, before Abraham had any influence upon him, was no holy man was no righteous man. Maybe with the idolatry that was going on, maybe not even a moral person. And yet, this man gave birth to the greatest soul, which in Kabbalah is called Eitan. Avram is called Eitan, which means a strong one. You can imagine that if this man was not a holy man, he wasn't sanctifying himself at the time of coitus. 
Thus we now know that when this holy mystical book says that the main thing is that the father and mother at the time of making the child should sanctify themselves, they're not talking about the soul. Because it has absolutely no impact on the soul itself what the father and mother do. The godly soul is directly decided by God. Which soul? How it will descend is all about God. And thus you have all these things that we'll never understand. You have the story of Ruth, the mother of King David, the matriarch of Mashiach. We're talking about no small soul here, Ruth. And Ruth the Moabite. What's the Moabite? Why is it called Moabite? In Hebrew, we know the story that's said in Genesis. Moabite means from my father because there was the incest that Lot had with his two daughters. So the type of stuff that was going on here is far from holy. And yet look at what soul came forth from them. The soul of Ruth to come from. And this goes on and on. Okay? So what we need to understand now is then, what is that holy book saying that so much depends upon the father and mother sanctifying themselves? If what we're learning here, what the parents sanctifying themselves has nothing what to do with the type of soul that the child will have. So it's not Kli, but you're very close. He uses the word Levush, almost the same thing. He explains in Tanya that every single soul has a Levush. Simply speaking, the soul is in a bubble. The transparency and the clarity of that bubble will have a dual effect. It will have an effect how the soul is receiving from above. The bubble is all around. So this garment, this bubble garment, will have an effect of how the soul receives from above and how the soul will be able to give over to the body, the animalistic soul, the mind and the heart of the individual below. So on one hand, we're talking about a very huge issue. You can have the prettiest diamond in the world, but if it's covered from all sides in dirt, it won't be sparkling. It won't be receiving and it won't be <coughs> off. Okay? Therefore, we now understand that there is a very spiritual importance to how the father and mother behave. I do want to say this actually, when I first was studying this chapter, I'm talking about a little older already, not as a kid, we studied Tanya as a child, but uh, getting a little older, I had my own thoughts on this. I'm just telling you clearly, it's my own thoughts. If the parents can affect it that means it's human made then the child can correct it so therefore you would have to be able to say that Avram Avinu patriarch Abraham if we're going to suggest that his garment was dependent upon what his father and mother were thinking at the time then we would say it's not so clear it's not uh, you know transparent it's quite opaque then what happened to Avram Avinu? 
Thus, we understand that Avraham Avinu had to cleanse that garment. So the it's soul cleansed the garment. Not the soul. Not the soul. We're talking about the garment through which the soul receives and their soul gives out. Once the soul is in the garment. Once the soul is in the garment. No, not the soul cleared the garment. I'm suggesting that Abraham's work and search, he didn't immediately see God. According to one opinion, he's 41 years old, and the more famous opinion is 30 years old, three years old, sorry. But that time that it took, whatever it was, Avraham Avinu had to go ahead and cleanse himself. Um, I'll share with you very briefly a story, and then I want to talk about the second part. This story I heard directly from the person who heard it from the person who heard it from the person it happened to. You're not going to know names, so I'm just going to tell you. I have a friend called Moshe who used to go to a certain place, and he was very close to a certain rabbi who used to run Shabbatons. And this story happened between a woman and this rabbi at a Shabbaton. This woman showed up at a Friday night dinner. And this rabbi, you know, sometimes you sense the individual in front of you has a story to tell. So he asked, what's your story? So she said, I'll tell you the story. I belong to a certain cult way back in the 60s. I belong to a certain cult. And I have a friend who's in the cult. He's Jewish too. He was in Manhattan. And some guy came over to him. This is interesting. This is before the Rebbe officially started this whole campaign of Tefillin. We're talking about in the 60s. But this person came over to him, this Russian Jew, and asked him, you Jew? Yeah, I Jew. You put Tefillin? And the guy started explaining to him that he belongs to a cult. So he said, you belong to a cult. You should go talk to the Rebbe about it. How do I talk to the Rebbe? See, experience it. You call up this and this number in 770. You ask for an appointment. It's going to be somewhere in the middle of the night, and you'll get an appointment. And sure enough, that's what happened. He came to the Rebbe. Whatever she said to this rabbi, what took place between, in that room between the Rebbe and him, no one knows. But what we do know is the aftermath. Once a year, we would get together. And by that once a year, our leader would give us uh, all different types of uh, customs and traditions to do to be able to become more spiritual. And they they want to say one of the things, you know, sometimes you have these cults, uh, free love, doesn't even know who her, her child's father is. They used to do stuff like that, but they also had stuff like, for example, vegetarian, no wine. They were working on, on you know, back then, they were really searching their own way for spiritual, spirituality. Anyway, by the next annual meeting, all of a sudden, this guy stood up and he said, I just want to announce that I am Jewish. And I want to announce that I'm going to research my Jewish roots. I'm moving to a place called Crown Heights, New York, Brooklyn, New York. Those who want to join with me can join with me. And she said there was a small group who joined them. Let's find out our own roots. We're Jewish. She says, I'm one of those people. Interesting how the story goes further. They became, they became religious, um, got married, and the rabbi told my friend Moshe, I won't tell you what the names are, but you'd fall off your chair. They're very, very respectable families today in Crown Heights. To make the long story short, one day they're sitting, the group was sitting and talking, and they said, you know, we never thought of this. We don't, don't touch wine. We're vegetarians. It's a good thing. However, we did it when we were in the cult. 
according to Jewish law, the way this cult was running, it was actually under the laws of idol worship. You're not allowed to participate in anything that has to do with idol worship. Should we give up what we took upon ourselves or not? They decided that this is a question for the Rebbe. So she said, we pulled straws. And she said, I got the shortest straw. I was the one to go into the Rebbe and ask the question. She went into the Rebbe and she asked the question. And this is what the Rebbe answered her. What you're asking of me is not a small question. Why? You should know the reason why you were able to respond to the spiritual call is only because you have refined yourself through giving up the indulgence. Thus, I cannot tell you that this is a bad thing. Then the Rebbe went on to say, however, you should annul your vow and just have a little bit of grape juice or wine for Kiddush and Shabbos and Yom Kippur. This rabbi, a very famous rabbi, famous, uh, very famous publishing today, he went and he told my friend Moshe, by the way, ever since that story, I've been paying attention, a lot of Baal Teshuvot that I have been involved with, interesting, became Bali Teshuva around three years. I'm noticing it's around three years after they became vegetarian. Moshe now tells me, I didn't want to tell this rabbi, but that's exactly what happened with my father. My father actually found his way to Torah and Mitzvot literally three years after he became a vegetarian. So I'm just sharing with you that you're talking about the soul cleansing. I'm not talking about the soul cleansing. Even if a parent has created a very opaque garment, bubble around the soul, the individual, through his own refinement, can cleanse that. And thus, that's literally what you're talking about here. Somehow, through giving up, and I'm not here talking about um, uh, becoming vegetarians for religious reasons or, or that, that I cannot support. Because if God told Noah that he has a right to eat, I cannot tell you it's wrong. But to curb your indulgence is not a bad thing. The Alter Rebbe's brother said, any mitzvah that focuses on the physical pleasure, i.e. eating on Shabbos, you don't have to be so mahuder in. You don't have to be so, oh, I'm not sure I did it, so let me eat a little more. Don't worry. On davening, if you're not sure how much your intentions are, have some more intentions. By the eating of the Shabbos meal, okay? So, just going further. We definitely see now what we're talking about. In the Tanya, the first two statements that we had, the first two lectures, what the soul is and how the soul descends is not within the parents. But on the other hand, the garment through which a soul receives its spirituality, through which a soul can go ahead and transmit its, its spirituality, what we would call a conscience, a Yiddish heart, you know, that chispa de chodil, what the, that we feel. When we talk about that, the garment is very important. The garment is a product of the parents.
Now I want to talk to you about what does it mean exactly to make ourselves holy at the time of Kodos, marital relationships. So I want to just clarify some things, okay? There's a lot of rumors out there, rumors about, about uh, the sheet. <laughs> I've actually been the victim of that. I was a single boy, and this girl came back from Israel, and I was having a meeting in her parents' house. We gathered together the Jewish people then. It's before Sacramento had its Chabad house. We were just laying down the groundwork, and she went off the handle. I saw the sheet. I saw the sheet, and I said, that. I just want to ask you a question, by the way. The sheet that you saw, did it have black lines and strings coming out of the corners? She says, yeah, yeah, I saw it. It was hanging to dry. I said, I'm wearing that. <laughs> it's called tzitzis. <laughs> so come on, though. You know, the, the hole that goes over your head, the tzitzis, she thought was whatever. So we had a good laugh, and we moved on. I want to talk about some things that is brought down in the holy books. It is brought down in the holy books that my mom that he's actually says, there's two reasons why to have marital relationships with your spouse. One of them is reproduction. That is the commandment. God told Adam and Eve, you shall be fruitful and multiply. And thus that should be the focus of why you're doing this. However, you know, once you start learning, there's 72 hours of ovulation. There's a certain amount of time in, the, in, the, in a woman's life where she's childbearing. So what happens outside of that? On top of that, you should know that one of the three things that a husband obligates himself to his wife, biblically speaking, one of them is to have marital relationships. So much so where the Jewish law defines from the story of Jacob's gifts to Esau, the way he sent the animals and the amount of animals and the females that came along, we actually learn out that it depends what your job is. When she married you, depends what your job was. Certain people are expected to be home more often. Certain people are expected to have more strength, so forth and so on. And it literally tells you what your obligation is in giving your spouse marital relationships. So much so you should know that if you have to go on a trip and it's supposed to be a time of marital relationships, you need your wife's permission. It's very clear in the law. So obviously the law is not talking about only marital relationships. And what happens if you marry a woman who has a hysterectomy? You married her, you have obligations. So therefore, it's not just about reproduction. Nevertheless, Maimonides says, the second reason is also health. And therefore, a male, he says, uses the words from the Talmud, you shouldn't be found with your wife like a rooster with a hen. Basically, that's all that's on your mind. More and more and more and more and more. But nevertheless, he does say, as much as you should try to realize that in marital relationships, you're giving the essence of your being, and thus it weakens your health, it weakens your eyesight, it weakens everything, thus you should know. You should use it in a healthy manner when health demands of it. Okay. So we now understand a lot of things that people think are not true. There is no sheets. There is no only for the sake of having kids. It's broader than that. So now I want to share with you what would it mean for it to be holy. The word holy is not a simple word. Holy is not kosher. Chicken is kosher. Chicken is not holy. There's a difference here. 
It doesn't say have kosher sex. It says have holy coitus. A little different. So what I'm going to share with you right now is really thoughts I have based on a lot of study. I can't tell you I saw this directly in the book, but I think we need to make things practical. In that book, which I spoke to you about, he talks about things that are very, very mystical and holy. Now, obviously, for a true tzaddik, where everything is about holiness, he doesn't see the garment. He sees the inner essence. So, too, it is in this act. So, we talk about the ish and the isha, the man and the woman. If you take the letters of ish and you take the letters of isha, what do you have? Eish Yud, the fire of Yud. Eish Hey, the fire of Hey. Yud and Hey is Goshen. And thus you should really be thinking about what it means in the supernal world. What is the male and what is the female? In the levels of intellect, it's the Yud and the Hey. It's the wisdom and understanding. In the levels of emotions, this is the six small faces and this is the feminine mystique. And what does it mean when you bring things together? And so forth and so on. Okay. I tell you that's what religion Jews are thinking about no should I tell you that average I'm not talking about holy tzaddikim. that's not what happens so much so that if someone that I know because I don't know no tzaddik but I'm sorry if someone who was who I know would tell me that that's what they think about when they're having uh, marital relationships I would immediately suggest to them uh, mar marriage therapy that's that, that's a problem Sorry about that. I didn't realize that when I put it on airplane mode, my phone still goes on to the uh, Wi-Fi side. I didn't mean to be rude. So what is going on? What does it mean to be holy? So I want to just share. In the binary code that we spoke about in chapter one, the definition of not holy is selfish, egocentric. The definition of holy is selfless and theocentric. Now, when I say today, right now, when I'm talking about theocentric, I want to tell you, like I just said, it's very interesting to be theocentric when you're talking about having the most carnal relationship. Right? It's driven by nerves. It's driven by heat. It's driven by physical. So, yes. Theocentric means for the sake of having children. Children that will you'll be able to bring up as a continuing link to our golden chain. But with that being said, I want to use theocentric tonight more on the selfless level. There is this simplicity of being present at the time of coitus. What does it mean to be present? What it means is you should be focusing who you're with. When we talk about sanctifying yourself so that the garment should be transparent and not opaque, what we're really talking about is how selfless can you be in what is potentially the most selfish drive of pleasure. And thus, it's very important to understand that when we talk about the holiness of coitus, we talk about the holiness of a marital relationship, 
if I had to, and again, I'm, I got to be careful with the words I use, so please, I would define it very clearly as a difference between having sex or making love. They might physically look the same, but there really is nothing in common between them. When we learn this chapter, Tanya, and we're talking about holy marital relationships, we've got to make it practical. And practical is to be a little bit less human and a, a little bit less animal and a little bit more human. We already know that the word for human, Adam, can be one of two things. It can be Adama, from the earth I have taken you, or it can be Dome, because God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. In this specific topic, it becomes very, very clear which way you want to go. Thus, if we understand, the Rambam says about physical health. Let's talk about the emotional health that comes from marital relationships. Let's talk about the emotional health you give. When we can talk about that in this act, even when if it's a definitely at a time where it's not for the sake of reproduction, but the definition of sanctity means it's not all about me. Now, I wanted to take it a little bit further. We're mostly men here. When you talk about not being selfish, males have a tendency of kind of perverting that. Because, what are you talking about? I'm thinking about her pleasure. Very often, I'm thinking about how I feel like such a man that I'm the one who can give her such pleasure. It's still about me, 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 me. If you want to approach, it's chapter 3 in Tanya. We haven't gotten deep into the laws of sanctify yourself, even with that which is permissible, a huge issue in Tanya. We're talking about greater love and greater fear. He's at chapter 3 in Tanya, and he's talking about this. So understand that he's talking to us at the very onset from the physical selfish to the spiritual selfless. One of the hardest things to do, especially in our generation, which really has emotional dysfunction with the realm of intimacy. We'll write about it. We'll make movies about it. We'll fantasize about it. And we're petrified of it. What we don't want is intimacy. And yet, if you want to be able to sanctify yourself, it's got to be about the vulnerability of intimacy. It's got to be really, can I be focusing on what I'm giving than what I'm receiving? Again, we're outnumbered here, males to females, and I have the male experience. It's important for a man to know when he's sanctifying himself that for women in a serious relationship with you, the physical is less important than the emotional. And thus, when we talk about that the importance of the child, the importance of that garment being transparent, let's get down to the binary code. Transparent or opaque? What are different words for that? The only different words for that. 
selfless, selfish. So if we're talking about that the, the impact on whether the garment of the soul of your child will be transparent, i.e. selfless, or, or opaque, i.e. selfish, and that depends upon where you were when you were creating this child, you realize it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's the same thing. Were you selfish or were you selfless? <clears throat> and thus, I, I really, I'm giving this class and I was concerned, do I or don't I, do or I don't I, you know, not exactly your average Chabad class. <laughs> and then I have other Chabad rabbis listening to this. And you know, you should know that uh, there is lynching going on in Chabad. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, in all seriousness, the practicality of what it means to be holy. That's all it has to do about. It has to do about whether you're selfish or whether you're selfless. And the name of the game is never to be selfish. Never. Ultimately speaking, there is no gratification in the world as the gratification of being selfless to the person you love most. So I'm not talking about now even again the gratification of the ego of, oh, look, I gave her all this pleasure. No. I'm talking about the gratification of how deep the intimacy could happen if you can just be vulnerable enough to be selfless. It is, I'm really pushing my luck here by doing this publicly. But it is very, very telling that most often from the studies, <laughs> I wouldn't know, but from the studies, <laughs> how many individuals close their eyes as if you don't want to be interrupted by the presence of your soulmate? What is going on here? It is amazing how challenging it is for the person to open their eyes, let go, and truly sanctify the moment. Thus, we're talking about how to create a garment. I want to take it a step further. I already have my six kids, and my father already has his three kids. I being one of them, I can't undo the past, not for my kids and not for my father's kids. Thus, I want to take it to the next level, which I mentioned about Abraham Avinu. Now you know how to cleanse your own bubble, your own garment, if for whatever reason it was a weak moment, a selfish moment amongst your parents. You're not doomed. What they should have done to create the, oh, the transparent, selfless gar bush garment bubble you can do it by just keep on polishing away. And how do you polish away? It's amazing how many people come to me to rectify their sins and they want me to lay it on heavy. Oh, you have to fast. Oh, you have to give a lot of charity. But if you tell them, you got to become selfless. What, what are you talking about? But that is what we're talking about because that's what it's all about. Become transparent. Thus, practically speaking, sanctifying yourself 
in the most holiest of acts, which has fallen to the lowest selfish act, is all about be selfless. Be present. Be present with the person that you're with. Realize that your soulmates made by a matrimony in heaven. Then you know that what you're doing is cleansing your own bubble. And if a child is meant to come from this, we'll be cleansing their bubble. People, thank you.